This is Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written. And the best person to get an answer like that from would be Jesus. At Line Upon Line, we answer your Bible questions. Thanks for submitting them. In addition to that answer, open the book of Revelation. God wants you to be ready for the second coming of Jesus. And He wants you to have assurance about being ready for the second coming of Jesus. Thanks for joining us today on Line Upon Line. I'm John Bradshaw from It Is Written. With me also from It Is Written, Eric Flickinger. Thanks for being here. Good to be here again. Today, so what are we going to do? What's Line Upon Line? Line Upon Line is where we take your questions and find biblical answers for them. we so got quite a few today. We're going to open up the Bible together. By the way, we'd encourage you to get a question to us. Uh, email it to us. Line upon line at IIW.org. Line upon line at IIW.org. If you'd like to use the good old fashioned way and use a stamp, you can write to us at P.O. Box 6, Chattanooga, Tennessee, 37401. But we're going to dive right in. And here's a question from Lynette. Why do so many people today, even in churches, believe that it is okay to get tattoos? Well, I think one of the reasons is because that's what's happening in society. It has become more and more popular to get tattoos, whether it's because of television shows or who people see their, their favorite stars wearing tattoos. So it's become more popular. But does the Bible tell us that tattoos are a good idea? Uh, let's take a look at a few scriptures, and maybe this will help us to find an answer. Uh, Leviticus chapter 19, verse number 28 says, You shall not make any cuttings in your flesh for the dead nor print any marks upon you, I am the Lord. So clearly here there's some counsel about putting marks on your body. But is it just one obscure text or are there some other places in the Bible that give us some idea? You know, I would consider where the Bible says that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Would you go into the temple and graffiti the temple? I, I, I don't mean to get away from the, the, the question here. Maybe I'm staying with the question. Maybe not. We'll find out. I think it, it, it ties together. Same idea. Tattoos, not a smart idea. You're 17 years old and you think it's awesome to get a skull tattooed on your thigh. The chances are by the time you're 27 or 37, you're going to think it probably wasn't a very good idea. What really interests me is these big old arms full of tattoos. You know, if people were doing portraits of their mother and their father or, or roses or puppies, I might say I can see the point, but usually these things are the ugliest things in creation. Skulls and, and knives and death and destruction. I don't get it. Not everybody. Uh, and I can understand that, you know, I, I know somebody who, who lost a baby daughter and she had her baby daughter's uh, initials tattooed on her hip. No one sees it, just her. It's there. You know, I get it, but it still doesn't make it right in the sight of God. There are other ways you can memorialize or remember certain things. The body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Uh, by the way, if I might, and I think I might, um, do you think when people get tattoos, they're saying, look at me, look at me? Or are they really saying something like, you know, I'm just trying to blend into the crowd here and not be noticed? There's something for, about humility that I think tattoos go against. I don't think I'm being very subtle here. Uh, there's something about pride, and Bible calls pride an abomination. You know, when you say to yourself, oh, I want to get noticed for a tattoo I'm going to stick on my neck or behind my ear or on my calf. If you want to look at this from a biblical perspective, by the way, from a societal perspective, knock yourself out 
from a, I just want to do what I want to do, I want to do what my friends do, no criticism. From a Christian perspective, uh, methinks there's a better way. Now, you may have other verses. I want to come back to the question itself where Lynette said, why do so many people believe it's okay? Now, you've referenced uh, being uh, influenced by society. kind of think that's it. And there's another reason. Why do people think it's okay? The answer is, I have no idea. I have no idea. I, I, I can't imagine why somebody thinks it's clever for them to get a girlfriend's name tattooed across their chest. I had a neighbor and he had, I think it was Michelle tattooed across his chest, but the girl that he was living with right now wasn't Michelle, it was Elizabeth. That might have been awkward. Got anything to add? Might have been. Yeah, there's also another verse in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 2, that, uh, that hits exactly the same uh, points that you're hitting. Deuteronomy 14, verse 2 says this, For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God, and the Lord hath chosen thee to be a peculiar people unto himself above all the nations that are upon the earth. So God wants his people to be different. He wants them to be special, set apart from the other nations or worldly people. There ought to be something that distinguishes God's people from those who are not. But I tell you what, this has permeated the church. I saw something online where the, 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 the church was tattooing someone up on the stage while the pastor preached the sermon, and it was helping the pastor make the sermon of, make the point of the sermon. When you've got that going on, it's really easy to understand that even people in the church would say, what's wrong with this? Look, if you get a tattoo, you're not really hurting anyone. I don't know whether you're hurting yourself. I understand that. But here's the way a Christian approaches things. The Christian says not, oh, look at that terrible person with a tattoo. No, that's not the point. The Christian says, what's God's will here? What's in the mind of God here? Paul wrote to the Romans and he said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies your bodies, a living sacrifice, holy, a living sacrifice, holy. You know, when the Bible is saying this, it's really saying your body's not yours, it's God's. So whatever you're going to do with it, make sure it honors God. That, that's, the, that's the sort of question that a believer asks herself or, or himself. And the reference there was Romans 12 verse 1, and you can look in verse 2 as well. Yeah, Paul uh, also says something in the book of Ephesians chapter 5 and verse number 27. He says, when Christ comes back, he's looking for his bride, that is his church, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So God's looking for a pure people. Now, again, does that mean that we condemn people who have tattoos? Uh, no, many of them have a, a story, a history, and, and they tell it through their tattoos. But by God's grace, we want to make sure that we are making a biblical stand, uh, one that is going to separate us from the rest of the world. Great question here from uh, James. What does the Bible say about predestination? What is it? And how would you know if God chose you? Interesting, Calvin was a great man of God. He was a reformer. He carried forward the advance of truth, but man, he got it wrong when it came to predestination. Essentially, Calvin taught that there are some people predestined by God to be saved. And if that's you, then you're going to be saved no matter how much kicking or screaming you do. And God predestines certain people to be lost, and they're lost. And if it's you, hey, worship who you want, what you want, how you want, but you're lost, I'm sorry. And that's essentially predestination. I know I've simplified it, but at the end of the day, that's that. Now, listen to John 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the 
world that he gave his only begotten son. Eric, finish that. That that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That word whosoever, uh, that's an interesting word. It surely is. It means that if you're lost and you want to be saved, you can be saved. If you're saved and you want to be saved, you can be saved. If you're black, if you're white, if you're Asian, if you're Hispanic, if you're from Africa, if you're from Thailand, whosoever. If you've failed in life, if you've succeeded in life, whosoever. If you've been warring against God, if you've been faithfully following God, whosoever. The Bible says, God our Savior desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's 2 Timothy 2.4. Uh, Jesus came for everyone. He came for you. He came for me. And it's up to us to decide whether we want to accept that gift of salvation or not. Look at Romans 8.28 for... We know all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. Whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, then he also glorified. What should we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? So what Paul is saying is that God has done everything that he possibly could to provide everything that we possibly could need for salvation. He has called us, and as he has called us, we can be certain that we have everlasting life. But this is predicated upon believing. Eric? Couldn't have said it better myself. Uh, you probably could have, but it was nice of you to say <laughs> so. i got a question for you. All right. It's from Leonard. Is manna dropping anywhere in the world on Fridays? Not that I have noticed. Not that I have noticed. Leonard, if you're aware of some place that manna is dropping on Fridays, uh, I hope that you'll share it with me. Yeah, which reminds me that that email address, Leonard, uh, for the news would be lineuponline at iiw.org. And that's the email address for you to send your questions, if you would Line upon line at IIW.org. I've not heard of manna. Um, Haven't heard of it dropping on Thursdays either. No, and not, and not for some time. It's been some thousands of years. But it did. It did come, and I think that's very important. Here's a question from Esther. There are many traditions in the church. What should we do if they do not line up with the Word of God? Well, Esther, I think the short answer is if there's a tradition in the church that doesn't line up with the Word of God, don't keep that tradition. That's the short answer. Can you think of any? Well, listen, by the way, there are traditions. Uh, the bride wears white. Sure. Harmless tradition. Yeah, no problem with Thanksgiving. that. Thanksgiving. Yep. Just great a tradition. tradition. A one great tradition. But if a tradition contradicts something, stands in the place of something that God has set forth, that can be a problem. Uh, probably one of the most significant ones that we see in Christianity today. Wait a moment. We'll share it on the other side of the break. Sorry I'm to do that soon. to you. Yeah, no, no, no. Let's just talk about the idea of traditions, and we'll we'll do the reveal in <laughs> a moment or so. That'll be okay. Uh, so, traditions. There are some good traditions. Absolutely. Yeah. Praying before a meal. Right. Great tradition. Praying before you go to sleep. Mm -hmm. Great tradition. Having family worship. Could be even more than a tradition. Amen. So, lots of great traditions. Yeah, that's right. But the principle that you mentioned just a moment ago is: Does it line up with the Word of God. That's key, isn't it? It is. Yeah. It is. Because for the believer, 
the beginning and the end is the Word of God, the Bible. This is where we base our faith because this is the revelation to us provided by God of Himself. So we want to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And I think you might have heard me say that once or twice before. Okay, we'll be back in just a moment with more. He's Eric Flickinger. I'm John Bradshaw. This is Line Upon Line. We'll see you again in just a moment. The ground shook. Lightning flashed. There was thunder. God gave His Ten Commandments, writing them on stone, delivering them to Moses to take down from the mountain to the people. Are those Ten Commandments still valid and relevant for us today? Join me for Great Chapters of the Bible, our ongoing series on It Is Written, as we look at another great chapter of the Bible, Exodus chapter 20, written long ago. But is it relevant for us today? And if Exodus chapter 20 is relevant for you and me today, how does God want it to impact our lives? We'll dig deep. Exodus chapter 20, another great chapter of the Bible. Don't miss it. Brought to you by It Is Written. Planning for your financial future is a vital aspect of Christian stewardship. For this reason, It Is Written is pleased to offer free planned giving and estate services. For information on how we can help you, please call 800-992-2219. Call today or visit our website, hislegacy.com. Call 800-992-2219. Welcome back to Line Upon Line. I'm John Bradshaw. With me, Eric Flickinger. We're from It Is Written, and this is where we have an opportunity to answer your Bible questions. And we looked at one a moment ago that asked about traditions. What do we do if there are traditions uh, in church that contradict the Word of God? What do we do? You, you started to tell us, Eric, and I rudely interrupted. So can you think of one, I think you can, a tradition that contradicts the Word of God? Probably one that stands out above just about any other tradition that has come into the Christian church that doesn't have a biblical foundation would be the sacredness of Sunday. Uh, when you look back all the way at the very beginning of creation, we see that God created the earth in six days, and then the Bible says in Genesis chapter 2 that He rested on the seventh day. In fact, He rested, He blessed it, and He sanctified that day. But over time, another day has kind of come in and pushed God's holy day out and insinuated itself in its place. Yeah, and how did that happen? Well, it took some time. Uh, when you take a look at the Sabbath, that is the seventh day of the week through the Bible, all the way from Genesis through the Old Testament, you see that that was God's holy day. His people kept it. Adam kept the Sabbath. Moses kept the Sabbath. Uh, Isaiah kept the Sabbath all the way through the Old Testament. Then you come into the New Testament, you find that Jesus kept the Sabbath. Peter kept the Sabbath. Paul kept the Sabbath. But over time, Sunday started to come in. Why? Well, there's some reasons that people give. One of those reasons is that Jesus rose on Sunday, and so that's given as an explanation of why Sunday now has a, a higher regard than the Sabbath, or what we often refer to today as Saturday. But it's an interesting transition over time. Of It didn't happen just at the drop of a hat or the snap of a finger. Uh, very slowly it came in. 
I think a lot of people who have not heard this or have not been familiar with this would be very surprised. Mm. If you just do what mum and dad taught you, if you do what society does, and going to church on Sunday certainly can't be a harmful thing. No one's going to say to themselves, oh, this is my day of rest, and oh, what a bad thing that is. Yeah. It seems like such a very positive thing. It's centered around the worship of God. But again, I mentioned this earlier, the Bible's our standard. And when you look at this from a biblical point of view, it's very clear that Sunday is merely a tradition. Infant baptism is a tradition. The Bible doesn't command that. It, it speaks of baptism by immersion. Um, Easter eggs are a tradition. I would say, and I don't want to uh, be impolite, but Sunday sacredness and Easter eggs stand on basically the same authority. Pretty much the same. Yeah. So we'd like to encourage you to be biblical, and if, if this is new to you, contact us at It Is Written, and we'll get something to you. Uh, we got some wonderful resources that speak about uh, the Sabbath and Sunday. It'll explain that story to you uh, with some depth. All right, Eric, another question for you. This is from Nancy. How would you define true godliness? Well, true godliness, it's probably not me. And I Amen. might go so far as to suggest yeah. that it might not be John no. either. We may not be the best examples. But there is one example that we can indeed point you to, and that with a great deal of confidence, and that, of course, is Jesus. He is the embodiment of true godliness. If you want to know who God is, take a look at Jesus. Jesus was here to show us who God is. You want to see God? Take a look at Jesus. Now, the Bible tells us that we ought to be, it's very interesting, heaven isn't for good people. I hope you realize that. Nothing in the Bible says that good people are going to go to heaven. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that holy people will go to heaven. Righteous people will be saved. And so, if we want to possess true godliness, how in the world do we do that? We've been told in the Bible that we have this incurable heart. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We can't change uh, ourselves like a leopard can't change its spots and an Ethiopian can't change the color of her or his skin. So where can we get godliness? Well, Eric has given us the answer. I want to share some verses with you. Uh, godliness is, is found in Christ Jesus. Let me read to you from uh, Philippians chapter 3. I'll start in verse 9. Paul wrote, And be found in him, Christ, not having mine own righteousness which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ the righteousness which is of God by faith. So you like that? We can receive the righteousness of God. That would be godliness. And how might we do it? By faith in Jesus Christ. Excellent question. All right, we've got another question here. This one comes from Vincent. Vincent asks, if God will forgive any sin that we can commit, how can there be an unpardonable sin? Vincent, first let's celebrate your question. If we confess our sins, 1 John 1 verse 9, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You may have heard that said before, and sometimes, you know, there are preachers who have the ability to say the most amazing things and make them sound pretty ho-hum. But I'm not going to do that right now. Vincent, the Bible says if you can confess it, God can forgive it. No, wait. God will forgive it. There is hope in the Lord. With Him there is mercy. There is a plenteous redemption. The Bible is so filled with the promise that God will forgive you. 1 Corinthians 15.3 Christ died for our sins. It's awesome. So, Moses was a murderer. God forgave him. 
There was a woman taken in adultery. God forgave her. Woman with a slew of husbands and evidently her life was a little dysfunctional. God forgave her. A demoniac. Jesus uh, fixed him up by casting the demons out. There were proud people and there were angry people and there were thieves and Jesus forgave them all. How in the world then is there an unpardonable sin? Well, let's take a look at what the Bible has to say. I was once in a, in a Bible study group and this question came up, how can there be an unpardonable sin? And the consensus that the Bible study group came to was, well, there can't be an unpardonable sin. Ooh. I thought, well, that's interesting because the Bible talks about an unpardonable sin. So I, I had to raise my hand and point them to a verse. Uh, but let's take a look at it. Matthew chapter 12 and verse number 31. Therefore, I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come. So we saw in 1 John 1, 9 that if we confess a sin, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive that sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen. But here it says that there is a sin that cannot be, that will not be forgiven. So how can that be? Well, the answer is actually much simpler than a lot of people make it out to be. If any sin that we confess will be forgiven, then that would indicate that the unpardonable sin is a sin that is not confessed, therefore not forgiven. So is this somebody who said the prayers one night and said, oh Lord, I, I said a bad word, forgive me please, and I, I stole $5, forgive me please, and I indulged in pride, forgive me please, amen. But forgot covetousness, and died of a heart attack in the night and God says, you didn't confess. Is that what you're saying? Didn't confess that one. God doesn't operate like that. He knows what's going on in a person's heart. The unpardonable sin is a sin that where we're resisting the moving of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. He teaches us what's right and what's wrong. He draws us together. He, we have the ability, though, to resist the moving of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And when we resist the moving of the Holy Spirit, we're really resisting God's moving in our lives. So if God's trying to teach us something through the Holy Spirit and we're pushing away, we're really pushing God away. And the more we do that, the less easily we can hear his voice. Amen. Well said. Thank you for that. A question from Jim. When will the righteous receive their rewards? Well, let's take a look. Revelation chapter 22 and verse number 12 gives us a pretty good answer. Jesus says, and behold, I am coming quickly. Now this is referring, Jesus is referring to his second coming. And behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. So Jesus says he is coming to bring his reward with him when he comes the second time. Hey, this thing here where it says, I'm going to uh, reward everybody according to their work. That, that, that sounds... Sounds like salvation by salvation works. Salvation by works. But we know that we're not saved by our works. In fact, Paul says in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, Know ye not that you're saved by grace through faith. So what's Jesus driving at here when he says, uh, bring reward according to their works? Sure. When a person is saved by God's grace through faith in Christ, not by their works, they recognize the gift that God has given them. And as a result of that, as a result of inviting Jesus into your heart, he will change you. You give him permission to work in your life. And when that happens, 
you become a different person. You live differently. You talk differently. You think differently. So our works, the way that we live, are changed by Christ on the inside. We are not digging down and gritting our teeth and making ourselves do good things. Those good things just naturally flow forth from us just as naturally as they flowed forth from Jesus. Yeah, a changed heart, a changed life is evidence that the gospel uh, is taking hold on a person's right. life. Okay, so somebody accepted Jesus last night and today they reached for a beer and a cigarette and uh, turned to their living significant other and said, hey, you know, what's up? Uh, they turned to Jesus and accepted him, but they say, oh, there are still some things in my life that shouldn't be there. I think it's important to address this. There's one thing that you've, you've got to realize, and I hope I can say this without being uh, run out of town. But when you accept Jesus, he forgives you. He gives you a new heart. He gives you his righteousness. But that doesn't mean that you don't have some growing left to do. It doesn't mean you don't have some learning left to do. Uh, you take a tennis lesson from the best tennis coach in the world. It doesn't mean you're going to serve aces every single solitary time. You've still got some development to do. You understand? So do, do balance this up because we speak about God changing your heart. Uh, don't use this as an excuse. People can. Uh, but God changes your heart. But the, the truth is there's some growing left that's going to take place in your experience. Uh, factor that in when you're looking at what's going on in your life. Next question, sir. Next question comes from Linda. And Linda asks, Why did Jesus cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Didn't Jesus know his destiny from the beginning? Ooh, that's a good question. Yes, he did know his destiny from the beginning. Well, from the beginning enough. There was a time that he realized, I think, you know, sitting in the temple, uh, Jesus figured out right around that time, Ooh, there's a destiny for me here. There's a direction for me here. So explain this. This was God in the flesh, and yes. uh, the, the question indicates question indicates that maybe Jesus, based on what he said, didn't understand his destiny. Yeah, he certainly understood how things were going to take place before he took on human flesh. As he was a human, he learned things as he went. Now, one thing that he recognized on the cross was the fact that he was fulfilling prophecy as the Messiah. And there's a passage in Psalm 22 which says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? You know, Jesus was fully God, but at the same time, he was fully man. And if you were going through the same things that Jesus had to go through at the very end of his life, you might have felt forsaken by God too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this was Jesus having the sins of the world placed upon him. Now, there's another thought that I'd like to share with you. Maybe Jesus absolutely recognized what was going on. And being so familiar with Psalm 22, he cried this out in recognition that his death on the cross was a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. So perhaps it's not that Jesus didn't realize. Perhaps it's that Jesus absolutely, completely and utterly did realize but what we know is that though he was the Holy Son of God, he had sin placed upon him and he was experiencing separation from his father. And as Eric said, that would have felt ghastly. Hey, don't you feel ghastly? Contact us with any Bible question. You have line upon line at IIW.org, line upon line at IIW.org. Have faith in God. We want to encourage you to do that. Trust in him. Always remember God is good. 
and God is love. And give me another attribute of God that we might want to remind people about right now. He is forgiving. No matter what you have done, if you take your sin to him, your rebelliousness, whatever it is that's been burdening your heart, take it to him, give it to him. His promises, he will forgive you. Amen. Thanks, Eric Flickinger. I'm John Bradshaw. This has been Line Upon Line. We're looking forward to seeing you again next time. Until then, God bless you. Mm-hmm.